It's good to be here again. Thank you for the opportunity. And I guess I ought to say Happy New Year. Uh, January 1st, 2023. At least that's what we call it. The Jewish calendar says it's the 8th of Tevet in the year 5783. Why the disparity? Somebody changed the calendar sometime, somewhere along the way. <laughs> For 5783 is a lot more years than 2023. Something radical happened to divide human history between what happened before and what happened after. So what is that radical history-changing event? Well, here's a hint. Officially, today, it's 2023 A.D., Anna Domini, the year of the Lord. In other words, all of history has been divided by the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. I say all this to introduce the text this morning. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we learn the radical difference between life before Christ and life after Christ. Some want to make light of that difference. That was the problem that the Apostle Paul faced in Corinth. And frankly, it's still around today. People who think that nothing really has changed in God's dealing with us, whether before or after Christ came. Well, when you hear such things, just ask yourself, and what year is it again? <laughs> 2023. There's a reason for that. So let me read the text. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to read um, verses 6 down through 18. That's in page 1146 in the Pew Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Picking up in verse 6. God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will that which is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we're very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought, in, brought to an end, but that their minds 
but their minds were hardened. So to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whatever Mo- whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the Word of God. What we have here in this section is a comparison between the Old Covenant before Christ came. The Apostle Paul calls that the ministry of the law. And the New Covenant after Christ's resurrection and ascension, which the Apostle calls the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So in this text, the comparison between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is the difference between living under the law and living by the Holy Spirit. I want to walk you through this by means of three truths. There's a lot in this passage. We won't cover every word of it. It's a difficult passage. But let me point out three things to you. Our first point is this, focusing on God's law. Here we learn, point number one, God's law enlightens our way. God's law enlightens our way. We like to think we're the most enlightened people that have ever lived on the planet, though God's word means nothing to most people. But the Lord says otherwise. In Psalm 19, 8, we read, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Or in the New Living Translation puts it, giving insight for living. God's law enlightens our way. Way back in the day of Moses, there was something glorious about the law. Here in our text, the Apostle Paul reminds uh, the people of Moses' face shining. We, We read about that in Exodus 34. When Moses came down from the Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. In other words, the glory of God's law was so great that when Moses returned with the tablets of stone with the law on it, the people could not even look at him. For the law of God shines with glory, enlightening our way. So what exactly was so glorious, so enlightening about the law? Well, let me mention a few things. I haven't listed them, so I say, first of all, I don't know what third, fourth, fifth is, but first of all, in the law, God reveals his will. 
all over the world, people live in ignorance and terror, bowing down before idols and worshiping mountains and creatures, trying but never knowing what it takes to please the gods. But in the law, God sets forth his standard of righteousness. He summarizes it in ten profound commands. So that by the law, we clearly know God's will. God's law enlightens our way. Unlike any human code. Another glorious thing is that uh, under God's law, things are orderly. We've recently come to appreciate orderliness because we suddenly have anarchists in our cities. Chaos everywhere. But God's not a God of chaos. In Genesis, in the creation account, we read that the world was without form and void. It was chaotic and empty. But God ordered it and filled it with his creatures. Such is the character of God's law. It's orderly. It enlightens our way. In the same vein, under the law, things are either commanded or forbidden. This is especially attractive in our day of relativism, where nothing is entirely right or entirely wrong. We long for the right to be right and the wrong to be wrong. And sure enough, in the law, things are gloriously clear and absolute. Here's how you farm. Here's how you govern. Here's how you resolve disputes with your neighbors. Here's how you eat and not eat and wear and not wear. Here's how you take care of your personal hygiene. Here's how you worship, when, where, how often, uh, by what means. What an orderly way of living. God's law enlightens our way. Then there's another glorious thing here. Under the law, there's a clear sense of fairness and justice. If you sin, you pay. Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. If you do well, you're rewarded to each according to what he's done. God's law is absolutely fair. God's law enlightens our ways. But the law also is glorious in that when you sin, there are ways to fix it. Don't go around feeling guilty. Go to the temple, bring an appropriate offering, Make atonement, God's law enlightens our ways. Folks, all of this is so attractive, it's so orderly. It may be heavy at times, but, 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 but we know what to do. We know God's will. There is comfort in such a law. In fact, for many Christians, that's the whole, the whole ball of wax, the whole faith. Keep the law. End of discussion. Ah, but our text does not stop with God's law enlightening us. It has more troublesome things to say. 
Which brings us to a second point. Not just that God's law enlightens our way. God's law condemns us to death. God's law condemns us to death. We may tend to slide over this truth, but it's right here in our text. Verse 6, we read a statement about God's law. It says, the letter kills. Then verse 7 makes that even clearer by referring to God's law as the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone. How can this be true? How can God's perfect law condemn us to death? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually explains it somewhat for us. The command against murder condemns not only the act of killing, it condemns the hateful heart. And, and the command against committing adultery is not just about acts of unfaithfulness, it condemns even the lustful look. As James points out, if you have broken even one law, even this law about our desires, you are a guilty lawbreaker. You see, our problem is not just that we lack some good traits. It's much worse than that. As the Apostle Paul explained in Romans 7, I would not have known what coveting was, except that the law said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetousness. In other words, when God identifies something as sin and forbids it to us, we immediately crave to do that. Why do we do that? Do that. There's nothing wrong with the law. No, the problem is that inside we are sinful rebels, always determined to do what God forbids. Oh, we can always make atonement, right? The law tells us to bring a sacrifice to appease God's justice. But think about that for a moment. Can the blood of a dead, dumb beast, even if it's the best animal on your farm, can that really atone for your willful rebellion against God? Can it really atone for you who are made in God's image? but have now rebelled against him? Is God so blind that he can't tell the difference between a human made in his image and a dumb sheep? Is God so driven by the desires of his senses that his justice can be bought off by the burning smell of flesh? And beyond dealing with sinful acts, what can you do about your rebellious heart? And what will keep you from doing the same thing again? For nothing has changed inside of you. Oh yes, the old covenant had a 
certain appeal, God's law enlightens our way. But mostly God's law condemns us to death. It shows us again and again how far we are from a holy God and how deep the roots of evil go into our souls. Ultimately, that glorious law becomes a ministry of death. As Warren Wiersbe said it so graphically, the law is a mirror that reveals how dirty our faces really are. But you can't wash your face with a mirror. Ah, but the text goes on to tell us of things more glorious. Namely, God's new covenant in Christ and the ministry of his Holy Spirit, which brings us to our third point. In God's new covenant, the Holy Spirit transforms us. In God's new covenant, the Holy Spirit transforms us. When we think of glory, we can scarcely imagine, imagine it apart from our senses. Think of the things we consider glorious. There's a glorious sunset or a mountain majesty or a piece of music or uh, uh, some, some uh, fireworks display. All, all of that is glorious, but it's all things of the senses. So it's easy for us to conceive of the glory of the law when Moses' face shined. That was a thing of his senses. People could see it with their eyes. It was glory perceived that way. But now our text goes on to say that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is more gracious, more glorious than the law. Verse 10 and 11 make that point. What once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, that's the old covenant, much more will that which is permanent have glory, that's the new covenant. One of the ancient church fathers, John Chrysostom, cautioned us about pointing out Cautious us about this, pointing out that the glory on Moses' face was perceived by the senses. But the glory of the new covenant is perceived by understanding. It's that kind of glory. In other words, we will miss the glory unless we give ourselves to understanding what's happening. So what exactly does the Holy Spirit do in his transforming work. How exactly does he do what he does? Well, we see two things. We see first that the work of the Spirit is internal. He's changing us on the inside. For God to even reduce his law to, to, to writing would be a great blessing, but we, we, we are no longer in the dark. 
And, and, and God is not just reducing, not just reducing his word to writing. God's spirit does even more. He writes God's law on our hearts. This was the ancient promise to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. It's one thing to know God's will. It's quite another to want to obey him. But as God's spirit works inside of us, he gives us a heart preloaded with his righteous will. The work of the spirit is more glorious because it's internal. Not just dutiful acts. It's a transformed heart. Oh, we know the practical value of things being made internal. Just to give you some simple illustrations, like indoor plumbing. It's a lot better than a well with a bucket or a path to the outhouse. We like internal things. Or the internal work of the Spirit is more glorious than the law, like central air conditioning, which is so much better than a fan blowing hot air in your face. Or this internal work of the Spirit is more glorious than the law, like, like your pancreas producing insulin and distributed it to all the, the cells in your body, that's better than taking insulin shots every day. The work of God's Spirit outshines the law, for it involves internal transformation. There's a second way that the work of the Spirit transforms us. The work of the Spirit transforms us not just by putting something inside, but by giving us new life. That's what verse 6 says. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. God's law condemns us, but the Spirit changes us. So now God's Spirit has begun to do what the law could never do. Based on the perfect life of Jesus and his perfect atoning death in our place, the Spirit now pronounces us righteous in Christ, justified rather than guilty before the law. Oh, but it doesn't stop there. For the Spirit not only justifies us, declares us righteous, he actually gives us a new righteous life. He deadens our natural bias towards sin and makes us alive, sensitized to God. And he not only changes our desires, making us want to please God, he actually empowers us and enables us to say no to ungodliness and yes to righteousness. 
I'll get an illustration. The work of God's spirit is more glorious than the law. Like a brand new shirt is more glorious than a patch to put on your old shirt. The work of God's spirit is more glorious than the law. Like installing a brand new engine in your car rather than having some oil for worn out parts. <laughs> or the work of God's spirit is more glorious than the law. Like being born anew with a brand new life is better than, being, than having the best diagnosis, the best cancer treatment, and the best hospice care as you die. In the new covenant, the Holy Spirit transforms us. He doesn't just confront us, showing us our neediness or patch us up. The Spirit actually gives us new life. This first day of January in 2023, in the year of our Lord, on this day we dare not miss that these, miss these great things which Christ Jesus has done. God's law enlightens our way. It's true. In the law we see awesome glory, the glory of God's holiness and righteousness and, and, and justice. But God's law also condemns us to death. God's law had a certain glory, but the glory of the law is a ministry of death. And so in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit transforms us. In the new covenant, we see and learn to live in the full glory of God's love and mercy and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Now, Father, we know so much more than we comprehend. How often we reduce your incomprehensible, glorious truths into some shallow, lifeless God talk. But would you today grant us understanding of your word? Renew us. Fill us with your spirit. Amen.